Welcome to the Monocle Banking Podcast, a series that's curated by Monocle Solutions, where we balance the books in the dynamic world of finance. I'm your host, Michael Avery, steering you through the ever-shifting story of uh, the rands and cents in this series. So whether you're a financial professional, an enthusiast, or someone who just simply wants to stay informed about the world, you're in the right place. Now, today we're going to be talking about the future of the asset management industry and some of the trends driving it globally and here in South Africa. And just looking at the numbers over the last 10 years, uh, it has been a bit of a boom time, although it does seem to feel like that boom, that gilded era is coming to uh, an end. We saw equity markets soaring to new heights. We know the S&P 500 has been flexing its muscles lately, averaging uh, an impressive 12.7% annualized return, nearly 30% above its historical trend. And at the same time, we've seen global assets under management have been on a tear, growing over 8% annually, according to the S&P numbers that I've seen, which sounds impressive. But underneath, you're also seeing some interesting trends around moves to passives. Uh, there's a compression on fees as well. And locally, we've obviously got Regulation 28 and a stagnant economy. All of that piling on the pressure in the asset management game. Well, my guest this week has been at the forefront of the industry and seen its evolution over the last three decades. You wouldn't say it looking at him, though. Uh, he's still in very fine fettle. Hendrik de Toy, the founder and chief executive of 91, entered the asset management industry in 1988 and uh, joined Investec Group in 1991, founding Investec Asset Management, which, as we know, rebranded to 91 in 2020. He's also a non-executive director of NASPAS and its European subsidiary process. Hendrik, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Michael. Great pleasure to be with you today. Now, I want to take you all the way back and a regular market commentator on my show, Wayne McCurry of FMB Wealth, says that you're probably one of the best asset managers he's ever met. I guess it's hard to argue with the numbers, growing the business to 2.89 trillion rands in assets under management. But going back to the beginning of your career, you received an MCOM economics from the University of Stellenbosch in the mid-80s. Take me back to that time and what shaped your decision to study economics at that time? Thank you, Michael, and uh, thanks to Wayne for the kind words. I used to compete a lot with Wayne. He's, he's my era, and uh, you know he's also a great observer of the business, but slightly too complimentary about me. I started as an uh, initially wanting to be an academic economist. I ended up with two master's degrees in different sub-disciplines of economics. And when I thought about starting a PhD in those days, the physicists were taking over economics and it became highly theoretical. And it was exactly at the time when the financial markets were being liberated by Margaret Thatcher in the UK. And I was studying at Cambridge and I just thought this is the next big thing. And maybe I should have waited and spotted the internet, but but mm -hmm. financial markets really grew at that stage and it opened up and it sucked in brain power, creative people. And London was absolutely the place to be. And I, I kind of got hooked on that, doing vacation work in, in New York and a bit in London. And uh, I've always loved the stock market as a school kid, even I used to read the stock pages and invested my small savings, which I got from delivering newspapers. So this was just the moment I thought, let's get into this. And I got a job at Old Mutual as an investment analyst. And I wanted to come back to South Africa. Why? Because it was starting to change. And I was involved in student politics in the 80s and even lost my passport and kind of had a sense of 
mission and also wanting to be part of that moment. So I'm I'm really a kid of the late 80s and uh, Mandela de Klerk era, which which inspired. Yeah, and uh, I was going to ask you, given that second uh, info was economics and politics of development at Cambridge University, yeah. that clearly you had a, a heightened or, or a highly attuned, politically conscientized uh, view of the world and what was going on here in South Africa through the state of emergency, then, you know, the talks in Codesa, and there was all of this hope around the, the Rainbow Nation at the time. And that leadership of Thatcher that you mentioned, very interesting that you, she also promoted collaboration with uh, Gorbachev to end the Cold War. And yeah. you know, it's the kind of leadership sometimes you look around the world today that seems to be a little bit lacking. Through that lens, let's fast forward to today and you know how you would evaluate the global political economy in a world that seems to be on the brink in the Middle East, what's going on in Europe, antagonizing east-west relations between China and the U.S., it feels very fraught. One must be aware, you know, becoming a grumpy older person. <laughs> you know, so it's a Simon and Garfunkel, uh, when we were small, Christmas trees were tall, and now that we're tall, Christmas trees are small. You know, one must be careful. But I, I must say, having in my job, our, our profession is a fascinating one because it's sort of semi-academic, but you also have contact with the real world. You meet fascinating personalities, corporate and otherwise, because we buy a lot of government bonds as well. So we meet people who lead countries. And, and I've, I've never been as aware of the deficit in leadership in serious positions around the world, political positions, than I am today. And that is currently the problem we face in this world. If you think about South Africa, it took Mandela and de Klerk and other leaders to pull this country from the brink of a Syria or a Palestine kind of civil war. And they did. And you look in the world, Thatcher, Reagan shifted the agenda. They weren't necessarily academic geniuses, but they had a clear agenda. They were leaders. Gorbachev was a leader in his own way. Deng Xiaoping, look what he created in China by just making sensible decisions. I think right now there are very few adults in the room. Many of the adults are probably in business or they are in official positions, but not with political power. So that is the risk in this world we face. And if I look at the US presidential election, it is actually the poster case uh, of the lack of leadership. And I think we've seen that in the United Kingdom of late and, and across Europe. If you look at Germany today, that's the leader of Europe. They have very limited leadership. So we have a difficult and challenging world to navigate, but it remains a far better world than the one we had in the early 80s in terms of wealth, opportunity, etc., living conditions for people. So we must never forget that. It's a very good point you raise because what I picked up in the zeitgeist of the times is a generation when you, you say we mustn't become curmudgeonly old men. Mm. If we look at the generation coming through, Hendrik, they seem to be dissatisfied with capitalism. There seems to be an idea and a leaning towards old theories, old discredited ways of doing things in, in the form of communism and socialism that I think has surprised many. After the fall of the Berlin Wall and Francis Fukuyama declared the end of history, one thought that many of those old debates had largely been put to bed, but they seem to be rearing their, their heads again. And in this vacuum of leadership where we don't seem to have the generational springs to grow uh, the sorts of leaders we need, 
this ideology is taking hold again. Uh, does that concern you? Yeah, and I think it does concern me because we have created a very atomized society, where, in, particularly in the West, where it's all about the individual. And so we have forgotten that it's not a choice between capitalism and communism or socialism. It's about how societies organize themselves. And in our drive to simplistic modern woke ideology, we've forgotten that different communities organize themselves differently for reasons, historic reasons, which you cannot deny, which you cannot ignore. And therefore, there's no simple solution of how to live. Exporting US-style democracy to every country is probably not appropriate. And we've seen it fail in many places. Exporting very simple, you know, we live in a world right now where when, when you and I, and you're much younger than me, but when I was at university, the West lectured developing countries to open their borders, engage free trade, and trust the global system. What is the world leader doing today? It's building tariff walls, closing off trade, making its own rules, ignoring the global system. So, you know, when I was in the 80s, just the philosophies have changed to suit those in power. And why are those in power reacting? Because they've got political pressure from the people in their own societies who are not entirely happy, probably because expectations were set too high. Mm -hmm. And probably because hardship isn't something that's worth tolerating. The political cost of hardship is too much. Sacrifice for a cause doesn't exist anymore. So I think we've got to see the world in terms of, you know, we've all got to go back and study sociology. We've got to think more about society rather than the individual. And therefore, the pendulum is slowly moving to the middle in a very, very crude way. But if we think about South Africa, our own country, it's not just about profit. It's not just about making success. It's about, as Anton Rupert said, uh, sleeping well because your neighbor is sleeping on a full stomach. If your neighbor is hungry, you can't sleep well. And I think we've got to start addressing societal problems in a sensible way without losing the magic of the market. And that's the debate. And sadly, we have a such a polarized world due to the fact that the media has, you know, the media platforms which were read by people and listened to by people centrally now broken up and, and we all listen to only what we believe in. So we, mm. we're all in echo chambers now due to the way the algorithms, the Googles of the world work. And so the village square doesn't exist and there's no honest debate. And I wish we could get back to a world like that. How, I don't know, but yeah. that's our challenge. So that yeah. we can talk to one another and not talk at one another. Yeah, such a good point. Neil, Neil Ferguson, actually, the historian, writes a great book uh, called The Square and the Tower. Uh, you know, he's an historian of, of some repute, and given his historic lens, he goes all the way back to the invention of the Gutenberg printing press and how we, uh, the good Lutherans of the time, thought that it would enable the spread of Christianity around the world because now you can reprint the good book. Yeah, what really happened, though, was uh, things like mythology, witch hunting, yeah. uh, all of that was reprinted and also led to a period of great hardship and, and spreading of disinformation at the same time. And, you know, I think in the social media world that we live in today, where, as you say, we're in our echo chambers and we're not really challenging our conventions, that, you know, it is a huge problem. And how we get back to the public square, I guess, you know, that's the million dollar question. In South Africa, you know, let's focus on how we could potentially do that in an environment where I know business is trying to work with the government. It has received 
uh, some criticism. Uh, some say that business should just let government fail and, and hasten a political change because otherwise things just won't change. Others say, well, you can't just sit by and, and watch the economy collapse and the hardship that that will bring. What is your thought on how business should interact with government in trying to arrest the decline? Michael, it's actually a timely question because I was on a call last night of the CEO initiative, which you know is, is chaired by Adrian Gore, and which tried to recreate a positive dialogue with, with government and a problem-solving orientation to that dialogue. And the Steerco members were reporting back. And uh, yeah, I went to that call fairly cynical, thinking it's just another you know meeting with government because we all have had pretty unproductive repeat meetings with government about issues. And I must say, I came back very positive and uplifted, not only by the efforts of those involved, but also the practical steps that have now been taken and agreed to by government after very regular, you know, the Steerco has six weekly engagements with the president himself and key cabinet ministers. And actually there has been action. For example, activity from police and the Hawks joint activity with the mines in, in, in arresting some illegal miners or stopping some illegal mining, uh, the transport questions in some harbors that have been uh, attracted, uh, dealt with. Um, I think we've seen on the, on the power side some very significant moves in terms of allowing wheeling in all cities in South Africa. All of these came from the dialogue. Now, business shouldn't claim credit for everything, but uh, the fact that they were actually explaining the cost to people in government and providing technical expertise where government is short of technical expertise is, is really important. The business can never run, government can never go so close, but in this country we have capacity in places and we should use the capacity. So I'm actually quite positive, but I do think that business people must also not uh, cynically just tell government what it wants to hear. We should be very clear about the challenges we face, explain that to our stakeholders and share, you know, particularly our shareholders, and don't shirk from uh, pointing out issues. I mean, I'm I, 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 uh, very respectful of what my old university friend Anton Rabo, who chairs Hortgrow, has done, has really written a, a proper letter and threatened legal action on the Cape Town port because the, mm. the fruit farmers are taking massive risks and are facing significant losses, which, which are just intolerable and will ultimately affect workers. So I think there's a balance, but I am a lot more positive than a year ago, given the reports we've heard about the engagements. You know, I'm not actively leading one of the working groups, but the leaders were very, very positive. Yeah, and Hendrik, one is obviously very mindful of not antagonizing a key stakeholder in government, but equally, I've, I've never come across a relationship that succeeds without absolute honesty. If you look at a Treasury presentation to Parliament this week, it just put into stark relief the taxpayer funds that have gone into bailing out six of our failing SOEs. I think 281 billion rand was the, the sum from that presentation. And what worries me is that one of the big elephants in the room, and we saw it in the Sunday Times over the weekend, is that we have to have meritocracy. We have to have the right people at the top. And uh, acting Transnet CEO Michelle Phillips and acting Transnet Freight Rail CEO Russell Barkeys, both highly regarded by the market and Transnet's customers, were deemed not black enough to be appointed to permanent CEO positions. Now, surely business is going to lend a hand to support this government. It has to start introducing some red lines and, and some non-negotiables. 
I think, you know, it's many, many years after the 1994 transition. In fact, we were in 2024 right now. There's a time when we should say South Africans must demand the best, whatever that best is, and we should stop apologizing. Uh, you know, we should always recognize and remember our past and make sure those mistakes, including the racism of the apartheid era, is never repeated. We can't live in permanent fear where the community cannot have an honest discussion about delivery, because ultimately, most of the beneficiaries in South Africa, if we run a good economy, will be black people whose parents suffered under apartheid. And therefore, we should address the issue, say what works in terms of transforming the economy to a fair economy and what, what works in terms of empowering communities, but not slavishly follow old formulae that were maybe correctly invented in, in the early 1990s. And the fact that a woman from a previously disadvantaged background is not deemed black enough to run a state-owned enterprise is simply nonsense. And we shouldn't tolerate that. Of course, we should be sensitive about the demographic makeup of who is in our workforces. Of course, we should be sensitive about the opportunities. But I think South Africa is reaching that point. The, the mere fact that you asked the question, uh, the mere fact that I'm comfortable to say that on, you know, on air, it tells me that we are maturing. And, and I think many, many black people, and probably the majority, would support that. They want delivery. They are tired of the incompetence and the litany of failure that we're seeing you know, in this country because we are not necessarily doing things the most optimal way. And I'm very sad about is what's happening in the Congo right now, where we're sending 2,900 troops, you know, ill-equipped to fight a battle without mm -hmm. helicopters, without the right things, and three died this week unnecessarily. Yeah. And, and and that's not necessary. And that has nothing to do with the legacy of apartheid. That is just all to do with incompetence and corruption. And, you know, I was watching Bafana Bafana play in the AFCON and I was absolutely amazed at just how quickly our deep cynicism around Bafana Bafana, because they haven't performed um, at, at the level that they, they really should have since winning AFCON in 96 turned around when we started to progress and made it all the way to the semi-finals and how South Africans from all communities, hues, persuasions, religions, got together and identified and unified as South Africans, as we've done in the past with the Springboks. And I think there are so many lessons in, A, just how quickly things can turn when we start to do a few things right and and uh, we, we're not like the Darwin Nunes of Liverpool and missing all of the open goal opportunities that are placed in front of us. But two, that we put the best people for the job in the positions that require real merit and leadership like our SOEs. And, and what we have in this country is we've got immense talent, I mean, from previous disadvantaged communities. We, we must unleash that, but sometimes they need a little bit of support, a little bit of help. And I think the way Rossi Erasmus ran his Springbok squad in an inclusive way, very mindful of backgrounds, very mindful of differences, but still ultimately focused on competence and winning games, is the way we in South Africa should play together. And this has nothing to do with your political persuasion. And I think it's really important that it's probably the time, if I had any advice to the president, whoever wins the election, I would not create a coalition if that is forced upon me. It is time to create a government of national unity, which is different from a coalition, which focuses on three or four goals, primarily economic goals, 
to get the society back at a level where it can feed its people, where it can supply jobs, where we don't boast about how many people are on social grants. And the support that will come from South Africans, whether it is the unemployed person, whether it is the billionaires, will be incredible because we've seen the capacity, as you've mentioned, the Bafana example. And it's actually not that difficult. And then execute. Problem is, we take a very long time to get something done. But my positive message to my fellow, fellow South Africans is, I think government realizes that we have reached a point, and I'm not saying the ANC, I'm saying government, including currently ANC is the ruling party, but government, that not further non-delivery will create such havoc that we actually have to now start mm. focusing on real goals. Whether we can execute well is a different thing, but we still have the capacity as a country. And, you know, the benefits of that, and I know you're a big bond investor in both corporate and sovereign uh, debt, and currently, I mean, at the 10-year, you're getting 11%. If you go out uh, 25 years, you're getting around 12 and a half. So, so government is paying an awful lot to fund its deficit, and that is a yawning deficit between what we expend on infrastructure and social grants and everything else, paying doctors and nurses, and what we collect in taxes. It's 600 billion rand. Now, the, the benefits, if we are to see this materialize, is that cost of capital will come down, and also the hurdle rate for companies to invest will come down as well. So it'll be a virtuous cycle. Yeah, and will become an interesting place for international investors. I mean, it's, it's not that difficult. Just make the place a bit safer. So in other words, get the criminal system to work, deal with the rife corruption, which has really put people in orange overalls, or if you want to get the political hurdles away, do an amnesty, start again, and put everyone in orange overalls after that, and create an environment which is transparent and open to compete. But the, you know, the idea that you just want to support one section of society against the rest is not going to fly because our skills and our capital is not equally distributed across the economy. But I just get a feel South Africans still have, and we've, we're sometimes very pessimistic, we actually have the latent potential. The same way Rassi turned around that rugby team in two years. Yeah. Okay. But decent leadership, decent leadership that is that is mindful of the bigger goals and not not its own sectional interests. And and it starts at local level. And much I'm I'm very encouraged when you go into the Platteland, uh, how people have just started to deal with their towns, reclaim their towns back. Uh, you know, when taxi drivers and farmers in the free state fix a road together. Yeah. You know that that's the South Africa we want to live in. And, and they couldn't care which political party controls the council. Those stories are not told enough. Mm, mm. Well, we Hendrik, only tell the bad stories. <laughs> well, in, in my community of Parkview, which is uh, as far from the Platteland as you could probably get, very middle <laughs> class, you know, the middle class never get out onto the streets and, and collaborate. And we're starting to see that. There were 250 sure. community members around a, a burst water pipe that uh, the city has been struggling to fix for the last 18 months. There have been 15 separate bursts. And there wasn't any anger and pointing fingers and shouting and placards. We just got together to organize, say, how do we fix this? We've got yes, the skills yes. in the community. We've got, you know, resources. We can build cross-functional teams. And uh, this weekend, in fact, we're going to be meeting to put a steer code together to see if we can work with local government, find someone inside local government. And I'm sure there are still individuals who are able and want to do their job. And, you know, that gives me a bit of hope. I want to bring oh. this back to the market, though, quickly. Yeah. Um, 
Because what we're seeing on the JAC over the last uh, several years, it just seems to be getting worse, is a real thinning out of trade. Um, I think the average over the last five days was around 13 billion rand. Do you think that malaise on the JAC is something more structural or can we turn this around if we start to see those green shoots of economic growth and, and the narrative around South Africa change? How quickly can we turn things around on the JAC? I think two points. Firstly, the JSE is facing a similar challenge to many exchanges around the world in the sense that public markets have become overregulated, have become less attractive, and huge amounts of investment is moving in the private markets and bypassing public markets. The UK is exactly the same problem, no different from South Africa. But in South Africa, we've had on, on top of that a disincentive for entrepreneurs to create large public companies because the moment they step up in the limelight, all sorts of demands are made uh, and community treats them in a sort of a hostile way. Mm. You know, first thing they want to write is this guy getting paid a lot and et cetera. And then they just hide in the shadows. So I think we should start celebrating public markets and explaining to the broad public out there that you succeed. If you have a little bit of that big company, if I have a small share in first rand and G.T. Ferreira and Lori Dippano and Paul Harris create this, this behemoth. I have money to send my child to school if I've supported them as a client, but I also have a share in it. I could never buy it myself. So I think we should start celebrating the creation of value and therefore government or the society should also protect that value once it's created. And I think in South Africa, with uncertainty about government policy, that part is not in place celebrating success, not talking about distribution. You know, distribution issues are important, but celebrating wealth and job creation. I think one of the things we should be celebrating a lot is people who create jobs. You know, I look at yeah. large agricultural businesses. They may not be the most profitable, but they sustain lots of families. Do we ever thank them for it? Do we ever talk about that? I think that should be a societal goal. Uh, and government shouldn't do everything. But but to me, the entrepreneurial energy is latent. If you go to Johannesburg compared to many other cities, it's latent. In Cape Town, there's a sort of vibrant tech sector, vibrant fintech sector busy unfolding. So I think it's it's still here. We just have to take it and say it's okay to take it public. It's okay to share it with other people and that bit and not over-regulate. Pete Maton wrote a wonderful letter to the JSE where he communicated and said, you guys are not going to get on formal exchanges the kind of business people that create the real wealth as in previous generations. And I think that's true. And that's what makes some actions inside government so bewildering, head scratching, frustrating. Just the Competition Commission, for example, the, the, the poultry companies must have wondered after sitting with Trade and Industry Minister Patel, bedding down a poultry industry master plan, to then have now uh, the announcement of a market inquiry, which will take resources, which will take time, which takes hiring an army of lawyers, when they're grappling with load shedding, grappling with water issues, grappling with all of the other own goals that we score, again, it almost beggars belief. Yeah, and that is where government philosophy and when a government minister in the presidency comes out and makes accusatory remarks to high-quality businesses who pay the taxes that sustain that government. You must push back. And and I think I'm very glad the, the poultry producers have raised the point 
competitions commission is a good thing. Competitions policy is a good thing. But excessive bureaucracy and scrutiny of business doesn't lead to the creation of new business. People go elsewhere and create those businesses. It's very simple as that. You look what happened in the U.S., with Elon Musk, he's just shifted from the state of Delaware now to, to the Texas. state of Texas. Yeah, you know, and 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 no, no one really won, but Delaware definitely didn't win. One of the key goals, besides stopping corruption, securing the safety of citizens, improving education, is to have a business-friendly government policy. Not just say it, but create a business-friendly environment so that people come and set up businesses here and create wealth, because that's the only way we're going to employ our vast army of unemployed people. Yeah, otherwise, and I, I know you've mentioned concerns about the increase in the offshore limits uh, that uh, Reg 28 has had on South African asset managers, but we're very welcome as savers that uh, we now have opportunity of a broader universe yeah. because the environment here isn't conducive to creating a welcoming environment for entrepreneurs to create the next first RAND group, to create the next yeah. NASPAS. How are you seeing Reg 28 impacting the local market? I, th I think the, the Reg 28 change was theoretically right, but it might not have been thought through by government and the moment might not have been correct because we need that domestic capital to fund the infrastructure rebuild in this country. But it's done. It's there. I don't think there's any chance to reverse. Uh, investors in South Africa have a choice, which we should be very thankful for. And we now just need to make sure that the rest of the pot of capital is applied because I think it would be very regressive to go back now and say, sorry, you can only take a smaller part. What we should do is encourage retirement savings. And our way we encourage retirement savings is to make sure that the tax breaks are there, but also that people get in jobs because that's how they're going to retire and create the savings pool that yeah. South Africa needs. Yeah. So I, I, think, I think it's kind of done. What we must make sure is that foreign firms competing here at least comply with the same social requirements that we as domestic firms are required to comply with, that they don't free ride off the system. And at the moment, that is not the case. Yeah, well, certainly with the digital market inquiry, there was a, a lot of focus on take a lot and not necessarily on some of the uh, the global competitors. Exactly. I mean, I mean, take to squeeze take a lot just before Amazon comes in. <laughs> it's, it's quite frankly, and I speak here as a director of, of the holding company of Take-A-Lot, I, I just don't think, you know, you say, well, well, is this really the right time to do this? I mean, of course you should scrutinize Take-A-Lot, but is it really the right time to give a gap to Amazon? Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. You, you can't imagine many other countries who have better alignment no, with the government. Would, the French would never do the French would never, the Americans would never do that. Uh, the Chinese would never do that. So, but but I, but I think again, we, we should have an open, honest conversation, not an accusatory conversation, because mm. they are very smart people at the Competitions Commission. They're very smart people at the Department of Trade and Industry. There are good people in the Treasury. Um, if we can just re reach the point where we have a national dialogue in the interest of South Africa. And, and we as business must be very careful not to put our sectional interests ahead every time we speak up. I think business yeah. is sometimes guilty of that. And I could have made a big argument for you why the money should not have gone off for Reg 28, because 91, quite frankly, would have done better if there's more domestic money and we only competed against our domestic competitors and not against BlackRock, Petroders and everyone else. But you know what? That's life. I shouldn't do that because it's better for South Africans to have a choice for their capital.
And that's leadership, you know, it's rising above, as you say, your own sectional interests. So just lastly, Hendrik, if you look at the asset management industry, it's had a bit of a golden decade. As that kind of comes to an end, we see the industry almost being forced to look slightly more introspectively to remain relevant. The, the traditional business models are being placed under the microscope. Uh, you can't just rely on market performance as a key driver of, of revenues. There are big challenges in the form of fee compression due to index trackers. There's sort of some rising costs as you invest in digital. What does all of this mean? I mean, you bundle it all together. What does the asset management business model of the future look like to you? Now, I think like all industries, they mature, they evolve, but also in the case of the asset management industry, we had globally three decades of falling interest rates, in fact, four decades uh, until mid-2022 when the kind of industry conditions sort of changed for the worse with a with a very sharp increase in interest rates in, in, in developed markets from near zero. I mean, just think about it, what happened dollar interest rates have increased almost 22 times since the bottom of the interest rate cycle about two years ago. It has a massive shock, put a massive shock through capital markets. The US, Trump and Biden both conspired with their policies to attract more capital to the US and really suck it away from the rest of the world. In fact, South Africa has been a very stable place and also for asset management because interest rates didn't move as fast because the country always had a pretty conservative monetary policy. So I think interest rates is the big thing that this industry is coming to terms with because when interest rates rise, financial asset prices are volatile or vulnerable. And and if you don't have a magnificent seven in your country, you don't have a booming exchange. So I think as an industry, we're facing this. We're then facing the, the competition from the commoditization side, i.e. passive, which I think has a limit because too much passive will make active really easy and you'll start adding lots of alpha. So I think, I think passive is a temporary threat rather than a, a, a structural threat forever. And of course, internationally, not so much in South Africa, huge amounts of money are recycled in private markets, not touching public markets. So if you're a predominantly public market investment manager, demand for your offering is lower now relative to the total pool. But what we mustn't forget is the total pool has been growing. Mm. And uh, the asset management industry broadly defined is still three or four times the entire toy industry in the world. It's still a pretty big industry. It's got a, you know, almost 400 billion revenue stream attached to it. And and the businesses that operate in it, uh, those that survive, it's a fiercely competitive business, are actually not balance sheet dependent. They don't need to borrow in markets. They are not subject to borrowing costs. They operate at fairly good margins, even with a lower fees. So I think it's a it's a very attractive industry if you have a specific skill set to offer and you have a place to win. If you have nothing special to offer and you simply rely on markets and client ignorance, it's going to be a very hard place to be. So there will be fewer winners going forward, but there will still be very big winners in this industry. And therefore, it is worth competing in it. But it's definitely a lot tougher uh, mm. than the days when Wayne McCurry and, and I used to go pitch four clients. <laughs> on that point, uh, Hendrik, we're going to have to leave it there. It's been a, a real pleasure having you on the, the Monocle Banking Podcast. Thank you for your insights and for your frankness. And let's hope that uh, South Africans can put their differences aside at a leadership level, at a political level, and rise above that uh, for some kind of uh, GNU. 
later on in the year when we find out when that date actually is uh, but uh, it's up to south africans to go out and, and vote uh, for the future that they want to see as well hendrik de toy take care thank you very much michael well, that wraps up this week's episode of the Monocle Banking Podcast with uh, Hendrik de Toy, CEO of 91, the 2.9 trillion rand uh, assets under management manager. Before we go, I'd like to extend our gratitude uh, to you, our growing audience, for tuning in. You can find us on all good podcast platforms. And if you want to reach out to me, you can find me at Badger on Twitter or email the team at Monocle. Until next time, don't forget to subscribe. <laughs>